Well, take God's Word in your hands and turn to the book of Colossians. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can find that uh, Pew Bible in the Pew Rack in front of you. And uh, you can find our passage on page 984, page 984. And we continue in our series, if you've uh, not been with us, we're studying the book of Colossians, a New Testament book written by the Apostle uh, Paul to a, a church of people that uh, many he had never met before. And he's writing a church that's in somewhat of a crisis and uh, struggling uh, to understand what is the true gospel and uh, what areas and things need to be pushed away so that the gospel of Jesus Christ might be made evident in their lives and, and in the church. And uh, we come to the middle part of our series where we've invested our time under one particular theme, and that is uh, preeminence. And that's not a word we use very often, uh, but it's a word of superiority. It's a word of grandeur. It's a word of greatness. And what we have learned in the first two chapters of the book of Colossians is that Jesus Christ is the preeminent one. And we've learned that he's a preeminent one because he, he rules with all authority. He created all things according to the power of his word. And all rulers and authorities bow the knee to Jesus Christ because in Jesus Christ the fullness of deity dwelt bodily. And we've been learning and treading through some deep waters, learning about uh, Jesus Christ and, and, and the uh, place that he uh, has in this world and, and the doctrine behind what we would call our Christology, the, the study of who Jesus is and, and the place and position that he holds. And, and as we open chapter 3, uh, it, it may seem like this has all been an exercise with our heads and our intellect. Yes, we need to know these truths about Jesus. Yes, we need to know the position and place that he holds within the world. But Christ's preeminence isn't just a fact about the world. It's a fact about our world as well. Uh, when we believe that Christ is the preeminent one, the great one, the, the one that has no equals, then as followers of Jesus Christ, it should impact the way we live. And we're going to study in chapter 3 and chapter 4 how Christ's preeminence affects the way we live. How it affects how we interact if we're married. How it affects how we address uh, the, the nature and uh, question of parenting. How we address the issues of prayer. Uh, the way we look at racism and how we judge other people by the, the color of their skin or, or maybe the social economic standards that they, they live by. It's going to affect how we pray, how we proclaim the good news to others. Christ's preeminence, we're going to learn, Paul says, is going to impact every facet of the Christ follower's life. And so today we uh, come to a passage of Scripture that's going to start if you will, the practical side of the theology that we've learned in the first two chapters of this book. And, and we're going to learn today what a life looks like that honors and praises God. What are some of the benefits and blessings that come along the way? And so I'm going to ask that you stand for the reading of God's Word as we give reverence to its public reading. And uh, I'll ask for Christ's blessing on our time, and then we'll jump right in. Here's what the text tells us. If then... You have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you, will also, you, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Father God, I ask for your blessing on the reading of your word. I pray that we will open our hearts and, and minds to what you have to share with us this morning, that it won't be something that we just take and, and put into our minds, but we put into action even as we leave this place today. Lord, I pray that your word will be spoken. I pray that not only for here amidst these people, but Lord, I pray for uh, the churches in our area that are, that are praising and proclaiming the word of truth. Lord, I think of, of Calvary West. I think of Christ Community Blackberry Campus. I think of our own campuses uh, of Indian Creek, Campus Espanol, and the Aurora Campus. That you would speak powerfully through those pulpits. And even the ones I haven't mentioned today. That your people would grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And together as one body we might serve this community even to the uttermost parts of the world. So praise be uh, to your Son, Jesus Christ, and to you, our Father in heaven. We give you the glory for everything that's said and done in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I don't know if it is because we're all growing tired of it, but 
But uh, Chad stole my opening illustration when he started talking about the weather. You know, the, the month of March has, has changed, and, and uh, you know, you look out, and as Chad said, it's still cold outside. We still got snow on the ground, and so I wanted to know what was the root word uh, where we get the idea of March from. I looked in the dictionary, and it comes from an old Indian phrase that means cold just like January. And for some of us, I'm coming to find out through your Facebook accounts that you really, really are hating this weather. It's really causing you to be depressed and causing you to really struggle, and, and, and you're just tired of it. Some of you are even threatening to get up and leave all your possessions and go find someplace warm uh, to live. Uh, we're tired of it, amen, right? We're tired of it, and, and some of us are living life, just to give you a picture of kind of what we're living with right now, uh, is, is a picture of utter despair. Uh, that's our life right now in a nutshell. I mean, these people do not look happy. They do not look like they're living the life that God intended. They're, they're pretty miserable. And, and what I find out is through all the moaning and groaning that goes on via Facebook, we're tired of it. We want something different, and then someone... One of those people that will remain nameless will put a picture up that will tell us they have left us in our despair and they have gone to a better place. And they'll post a picture like this. And we hate them for it. And they begin to talk about, and, and, and I, I, I have a friend right now who's living this life right now as we speak. And, and he said in a post yesterday, I'm living the life, living the dream. And there was a part of me that deep down inside said, I want that kind of life. There's something about that picture that says all is well. Things are going good. And there's nothing in there that reminds me of below, uh, below zero wind chills and, and snow. That's a life that's free of worries and cares, troubles and pain. But when we look at this, we feel like we're missing out on something. And we're left in the cold. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ like I am, with all my bumps and warts and bruises, you know that we're secretly praying that it'll start to rain on those people. <laughs> but let's bring it to a spiritual stance. We are in church, so let's bring it to a spiritual realm. And in the days of Colossians, there were people that were pointing to spiritual pictures like this, if you will, and saying, there's the life. And you're not living the life unless you do certain things, unless you're involved in certain traditions and, and, and rituals and, and certain uh, pursuits of, of knowledge. But what Paul has been telling us over and over again in this book is that all we need in this world is not a change in scenery, not a change in temperatures, not a vacation to, to fix our problems. What we need is Jesus Christ. And, and as a result of that, we who are followers of Jesus Christ need to recognize really the life that we have, that we've got the life. We don't need anything external. We don't need anything more uh, to, in essence, create a booster shot of, of enjoyment for the life we have in Christ. And so chapters 3 and 4 are going to remind us over and over again that in Christ we have all that we need to be all that God has called us to be a part of. And what Paul begins to articulate in chapter 3 is a question that we have to answer for ourselves that if we truly are a follower of Jesus Christ, are we living the life that he's wanting us to live? Are there things in this life that are keeping us or sabotaging our joy and, and peace and contentment? And so let's notice three things this morning from this text. First of all, I want you to notice that if you want to live the life that Christ promises in him, as he did to the Colossian people, we need to recognize the setbacks that keep us from this life. We need to recognize the setbacks that keep us from this life. Just because you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ doesn't mean you're living this life. And we've got to learn what are some of the things that may be keeping us from it. And to do so, we've got to look at what was going on with the Colossians. And in chapter 3, notice the false teachers are done with. The heretics have been dealt with. The questions about Jesus are no more. But as we turn to chapter 3, there's a conditional clause that should cause all of us to stop 
and ponder where we're really at this morning. Notice it, it starts with three words. If, then, you. If, then, you. They say, well, what are you talking about there, Tim? Those three words should stop us in our tracks. It should cause us to evaluate. If then you have been raised with Christ, are you a follower of Jesus Christ this morning? Have you been raised with him? For us, some of us right now have bought into, as the Colossians did, a a kind of thinking that made you believe you were in Christ when in fact you were not. And it fell within two extremes. The first extreme that we've studied these last two weeks was viewing our relationship or, or our life in Christ as a license to sin. Write that down in your outlines. That we would view our relationship as a license to sin. The, the first group of false teachers that we've studied were the Gnostics. And the Gnostics were a group of people who believed they possessed a superior spiritual knowledge. They believed that all flesh was evil and that only your spirit was good and useful for God. Because they believed the flesh was bad, they did not believe that Jesus Christ, in fact, came in the flesh, that he was simply an illusion of a, of a spirit of sorts. And because we sin, and, it ha- and that sin has to do with our flesh, that sin is an illusion as well. That sin really doesn't keep us from God. It's just a part of, if you will, the hazard pay of being a, a person who has a body. And so they would, sin, they would say sin was just an illusion. And that therefore, here's their line of thinking, you could say you have a vibrant and healthy relationship with Jesus Christ and you could sin like crazy. That seems preposterous. And yet the Apostle John tells us that this Gnosticism was alive and well not only in Colossae, but also in the churches he was writing to. In the first letter that the Apostle John writes to the churches, he makes it abundantly clear we are either in the light or we're in the darkness. We can't be in both. In John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, he says this, If we claim to have fellowship with God, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live in the truth. In other words, you can't have fellowship with Christ and have fellowship with your sin. Gnostics were saying because sin was material, you weren't to be blamed for it. You were just to, again, allow it to be part of the hazard pay. The Gnostics claimed that to have fellowship with Christ meant you could live however you wanted to. And yet they were living a lie. Now I've told you as we've studied these first two chapters that there are Gnostic undertones in 21st century Christianity, and here's how it plays itself out in regards to this. We have Christians, or in name Christians, who say at some point in the past, I made a decision about Jesus. At some point in the past, I was a part of a service where I experienced some some amazing things. My heart was warmed in in a significant way. I I prayed a prayer, I I walked down the aisle, or, or whatever you wanna call that, And yet from that point on, that person has lived with a brazen confidence that no matter what I do, I've got my insurance, right? We've heard that before. That's why all the surveys that that Gallup and all those places do say that there are a lot of people who profess a relationship with Jesus Christ, and then we ask questions, follow-up questions, and their life doesn't look anything like it uh, from a, a present standing. What's the problem? They've bought into this level of Gnosticism. I can have a relationship with Jesus and have a relationship with my sin. You see, what Paul is going to say is, if then you've been raised with Christ, your life is going to look very different. It's not going to look different because of some external experience, tradition, or ritual. It's going to look very different because God is going to be at work in you as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's going to meet you in that place, in that moment, and he's going to empower you to live differently because you, in fact, have been raised with Christ. That was the first extreme. Is that what defines you today? I can have God and Christ and have my sin. 
Or do you look at it the other way that a group did in Colossae? And that was they viewed our life in God, our relationship with God, as a set of legal stipulations. On the other side of the spectrum, there were those a part of the Jewish faith who had come out of Judaism, an Old Testament um, understanding of, of God and through the prophets. And they had merged that with Christendom and Christianity. And they believed that to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you needed to be bound to these harsh regulations of do's and don'ts through the law. And so they would do this. You can eat this, but you can't eat that. You can touch this, but you can't touch that. You can celebrate that thing, but, but make sure you don't celebrate that. You can be involved with this, but don't be involved in that. And, and it went on and on, and lists upon lists, and fence upon fence was set up so that you couldn't do certain things. And maybe today your life is not determined by a license to sin because you think you've got this relationship with Christ. Maybe you think that um, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ because I'm doing stuff. And I'm not doing what my neighbor's doing. I'm not doing what the person down the pew is doing with me. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ because I'm at church. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ because I give. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ because I serve. That's why I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And, And so everybody has to look like me. And if they don't, they're not holy. If they're not doing what I'm doing, they're not spiritual. You see, those type of people look at the license to sin people and say, wow, you really have messed up this whole Christianity thing. And yet when we look at it from another perspective, we see as legalists we haven't done so well ourselves. You see, we put people in boxes that we ourselves wouldn't be really comfortable with. And our life is not a life of desiring to follow God. It's a duty. It's a drudgery. We do it because we have to, because it's going to accomplish something. But what Paul is going to tell us in our text is if you have been raised with Christ, you are going to look progressively more and more like Christ in all the different areas of your life. Not because you have to, but because it will be a reality. You're a new creation in Christ. So if these two examples of extremes are wrong and won't lead you to the life in Christ, then where do we find it? Paul's going to tell us it is in loving and living for Christ and our Savior. He's going he's to say to love our Savior and to live for him, that's the life. Notice in the text, it, it tells us in verse 4, when Christ who is your life. Can you say that this morning? Can you say that Christ is your life and before you amen it? Because I'll tell you, it's really easy for us to amen it in church, right? It's really easy right now to say, yeah, Jesus is my life. We've just sung that. He's our hope of glory. We, we, we're in a group of people that it's easy to say that. But let's ask the question this morning. When I get home and I turn on the computer or I turn on the television or, or I open that book, is Christ really my life or is something else? When I spend my money, is Christ my life or, or is something else? In my relationships and how I interact with those around me, is Christ really my life or is something else? And, and what I, I've come to learn when I start doing tests like that in my life, I begin to find out that Tim is the life, not Christ. To put this into perspective, we can start following Christ and living the life of Christ in how I, I could possibly live my life with my family. You know that I love being a part of my family and love my wife and my children. And I could say, okay, because I love them and they love me and we've got this uh, unbreakable bond, because I know I'm safe and secure, then I really don't have to try at this relationship. I don't have to work real hard in loving my wife and my children. I just have to do the bare minimum. And even the bare minimum is really up to me because they're not going to leave me. Amanda's not going to leave me. So I can do whatever I want, and, and she's got to stick with me. And, and, and so I'll just I'll do very little. I'll do what makes me feel good, and they're just going to go along for the ride. That's living as we do when sin has been given a license in our life because we know that God loves us and he's, he secures us in our salvation. Or I could say... On the other side, well, 
I need to love my family. I don't really feel like loving my family, but that's what husbands do. They, so they're going to do things. So when Amanda uh, needs stuff done, I'm going to do it. I don't want to do it, but I'm going to do it because that's what husbands are supposed to do. And, and when my sons ask me to play with them or, or to engage with them, I'll do it. But I'll do it because I'm just marking off the list of the things I need to do as a father. Because that's what fathers do. They spend time with their kids. I don't like it. I don't want to be a part of it. But I'll do it. Because I have to. Or... Because I see the infinite value of my wife and my children and the blessing that they are, even though at times I want to be selfish, there is no greater thing for me than to love on them because they are a gift from God to me. You see, that's what Paul is saying. Paul's saying, once you take your eyes off of yourself, whether on one of those two extremes, when you put your eyes on the Savior and you recognize what Jesus Christ has done and the infinite worth and value that Christ is, it will change the way you look at life. And so the question is, if then you have been raised with Christ, as you look at Christ, are you living the life that Christ has made available and possible for you to live? Or are you taking his grace for granted? Or are you creating this relationship to be a a duty and not a desire? Jesus, is he your life? We've got to ask that question this morning. Now notice the things that that, uh, we put into our lives in Colossians chapter 2 verse 17. Paul says anything that we put into our life that isn't Christ are the shadows They're the shadows of the substance. And the shadows can have some value, but they will never have any value to giving you the life that you're looking for. And so if you're trying to live this life today, apart from Christ, you are playing around in the shadows when you could have the real deal. And the earth and the world and and all that's in it longs to show you through a, a, a powerful smoke and mirrors show that they've really got the substance that the life that you're longing for, the, the, the heart that you have for, for true um, vibrancy and vitality is found in the things of the world. And the Bible says they're shadows. The real substance is Jesus. You want this life? Then you have to have Jesus. Well, what does Jesus do to make this life possible? Notice that once we get beyond some of these uh, roadblocks or, or setbacks, notice we need to remember the substance of life. It's Jesus. He's our life. But how did he become our life? Notice Paul says in verse 1 that we have a DNA code within us as followers of Jesus Christ. And that DNA code is this phrase, you have been raised with Christ. Think about that for a moment. As a believer, there isn't much of a difference from a surface level look between you and an unbelieving neighbor or friend. We dress pretty much similarly. Uh, We mow the grass the same way. We paint our houses the same way. We do the laundry the same way. Much of our lives from a a, a public consumption standpoint isn't all that different. And so how do I know that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ? How do I know that that I have the substance and, and not the shadow? Paul says that it begs the question, Have you identified in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? I want you to know that following Jesus Christ isn't about some external ritual or tradition. But it's the question that you need to ask is, have I been raised with Christ? Being raised with Christ implies a couple things. Write this somewhere in your outlines. It implies that you acknowledge you're dead. It implies that you have a knowledge that you're dead. Paul addresses this a couple different ways in the book already. He tells us that we are living in the domain of darkness, chapter 1. At the end of chapter 1, that we are alienated from God. And now in our text, in verse 3, you have died. Now we know that he's not talking physically because they would be dead. And so he's speaking spiritually as he does in Ephesians 2.5 when he says that, that we are dead in our trespasses and sin but God has made us alive. To be raised with Christ must, by implication, believe that you're dead in your sin. And you say, well, of course I believe it. Well, do you? Do you believe that your sin and my sin, 
has caused us to die spiritually. You see, the world would not um, totally disagree with you. Uh, When I talk with unbelievers, they will tell me, no, I am not that good. But I'm not that bad either, right? So I say, no, you're dead in your sin. No, I'm not like Saddam Hussein or Adolf Hitler. I'm not that bad. So I may be bad, but I'm not, I'm not that bad, so, so I don't need Jesus. I just need to fix some things up. And so the world tells us that the way we clean ourselves up is, is through reform school, if you will, or, or through healthier habits that, that we're not as mean to other people as maybe we could be. But the Christian says, no, there's no amount of reformation that could have fixed me. I'm dead. I am dead as a doornail spiritually. There is nothing good in me in the view of a holy God. And so I need to recognize that if I'm going to be raised with Christ, I need to understand that I'm dead in Christ first. Second implication is that in this identity is not just the idea of who I am, but the implication of who Christ is. If I've been raised with Christ, I agree with the scriptures that not only he's the Messiah, but he's the Savior, and that what the word says, that he died on the cross for my sins, that's absolutely true. I don't need a Savior if I'm not dead. I just need to pull myself up from my own bootstraps. But if I'm dead, I need someone who has said he's the way, the truth, and the help me out. Life. I need a Savior. And I need someone to come who is alive to breathe life into me so that I can have a relationship with God. Being raised with Christ means I know I'm dead, I know I need a Savior, and Jesus is the one. But the third implication of that being uh, raised in Christ is that if I was dead and Christ raised me anew, then the last thing I should do is go about living as a dead person again. Does that make sense? So if I'm going to say I'm raised with Christ and I cannot say, well, I have a license to sin now. We'll talk about this later in the text. But I can't just keep living however I want. He's going to tell us next week, you've got to put to death some things because that's how you lived when you were dead. You can't live that way anymore. So this identity of who Christ is and what he has done in light of who we are should impact how we make every decision. And so he identifies for us who we are, who Christ is, and identifies what Christ has done for us. That's the past. But notice now he moves to the present, and he speaks to our security. Well, how do I know that if I'm raised with Christ, I will have this newness of life? How will I know that if I I trust in Jesus Christ, he's going to come through and, and take care of me? Notice Paul says in our text, That our life now is hidden, verse 3, with Christ in God. One of the reasons why living for Christ is the life is because we have security. We have peace. We're safe and sound. Some of us, uh, no doubt, are, are preparing for the future financially. And we'll go to a financial advisor and we'll say, if I give you my money... Will you promise me that when I retire, that money will be there in extra measure, right? And that person will say, I think so. Here's the basis of my think so. I think that if we diversify your accounts and and, uh, if you take a long view of the stock market, the stock market continues to go up and we're going to hope that that takes place. But in the end, I cannot promise you anything more than I'm going to do my very best to make sure that you're secure. But he can't promise it. But notice Paul says that Jesus promises something. He says our life is hidden with him. That means we don't have to fear tribulation, ups and downs of the stock market. We don't have to fear trials and bad medical reports. We don't have to fear temptations and what will happen if we fall to sin. Because as the early church father said, we are Christ bearers. Everywhere we go, because we're hidden in Christ, Christ goes with us. It speaks of an intimacy, a a closeness, that Christ is with us every step of the way. Growing up, American Express had a slogan in advertising, the American Express card, and it said to their customers, we're everywhere you want us to be. 
That sounds great, but here's the problem. I am an American Express card holder, and I can't tell you how many stinking times I put that card down, and what do they say? We do not accept, help me, American Express. Sounds good, looks good, but the promise falls on deaf ears. Here's what Jesus says. You are hidden with me. That means you are everywhere we go, and I'm available to you in all circumstances. Well, how do I know that? How can I trust that, Jesus? How can I know you are true? Notice what Paul says. He says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. That is a theological um, massive statement, okay? It is huge. Let me help you understand what, what Paul is saying. You and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, are as secure in our standing in the family of God, listen, as Christ is in his position within the Trinity. Just as Christ is hidden in God, that he has forever, forever will have a place uh, of authority and a place of, of, of oneness with the Father and the Spirit, so we will be secure. We are hidden in Christ in that same way. And so we don't have to worry about life. We don't have to worry about the circumstances. But, but let's ask this question. What does our relationship with Christ have to do with the middle of my week? The myriad of details that I face each and every day. The decisions that I've got to make. The events that I have to face on some random Tuesday. How can I know that he's going to be there with all that I need? How can I know, let me rephrase it, how can I know that my life and my family and my work and my relationships and my circumstances, how can I know if I give all of those things to God? that he'll be able to handle it. How do I know that when I put the Christ card down, if you will, they won't say declined? Paul settles our fear. Notice in the text, he says, you've been raised with Christ. Where, where, Where have we been raised? We've been raised from the grave. But notice, he says, we have also been raised where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Paul says in another term that he has seated us in the heavenly realms. And what that speaks of, when you see the phrase, the right hand, it speaks of a place of authority. Jesus sits at the right hand, not because he, you know, they were playing that, that game of, uh, of trying to get seats, you know, where you walk around. I forget what the game is, uh, but what's the game? Help me out. Say it again. Musical chairs. Thank you, student ministries. I had it in the first service, and uh, I don't have it now. But musical chairs. It isn't like... Jesus lost out on musical chairs. God the Father has put Jesus in a place of authority. And if you are hidden in Christ, then the one who you are hidden in, the one, listen, who holds your life in his hands, carries all authority. So rulers and authorities, you don't have to worry about. The devil and sin, you don't have to worry about. You don't have to worry about the circumstances of life because we have a God who loves us, who has hidden us in his palm that no one can snatch us out of that grass. We are in his, and and notice, he is seated on the throne. That's important. What you don't see is Jesus frantically running around heaven going, oh dear, what are we going to do with Tim's life? He is not sitting there wondering, what do we do with ISIS? Those guys are crazy. We can't figure them out. Oh my, what are we going to do? He's seated on his throne as he was before and as he will be to the end of the age. Now here's the thing that we need to recognize. You and I have issues that that no doubt will leave us pacing our bedroom floors in the middle of the night. What am I going to do with this? What am I going to do with that? Let me tell you something. Jesus is not pacing the heavenly bedroom floor, if you will, wondering what he's going to do. The Bible says that Jesus is with us and he will take care of everything for our good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And so we have a God who knows today as he knows tomorrow, just as he knew yesterday, and he says, I've got it all under control. You don't have to worry. You don't have to fret. You just need to walk with me. So notice, past, we're dead. He's taking care of that. 
present, the circumstances of life, we are hidden with Christ. Notice there is a destiny. There's a tomorrow. Notice he says in verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Words are important. Notice Paul does not use the phrase if. If Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. He says when. Acts 17, 20, uh, Acts 17, 21, don't quote me on that. 17, 21, I didn't write it down. It says there's a day, it's either 21 or 31. There's a day that has been appointed for Christ to return. And Christ has set that day. I hear some of you turning the pages to find that passage to see if I'm right. There's a day that Christ has appointed, or God has appointed for Christ to return. And that day hasn't been changed because your circumstances changed. The day hasn't changed because maybe you blew it yesterday. That day has been set. God has set that day, and he says it is going to come. And what he now says is put your hope in that day, put your trust in that day, and in light of that day, live today differently. But you say, Tim, life is really hard. It's full of blood, sweat, and tears. It's, it's agony at times. How can a prospect of something good coming at a later date help me get through the tyranny of today? Well, I cannot speak by example, but I know 50% of our population can for those that, uh, ladies who have had children. You endure all these struggles in pregnancy, and then at the end of the finish line, it really gets difficult. And, and, and at that moment, you really ask the question, is it all worth it? And then the children come. And hopefully, hopefully, I'm not going to assume this, you say it's worth it. Uh, Amanda's experience was pretty soon after having a baby, she said, let's, let's have another one. Why would you want to do that? That was a lot of pain and suffering on you. I mean, think about yourself. You, that wasn't easy. I was there. I was a witness to it. I, I struggled with you, dear. Okay? Why would she do that? Because the end result made it so worth the present suffering, Right? Hopefully you can say that. I know some of you are like, I'm not sure about that. But as Christians, the Christian life is hard. It isn't easy. But the hope of Christ's return is an impetus for us to say no to the things that, listen, feel so good with our flesh. But why should I say no? Because there's a day coming. God's appointed a day. And when he comes, we who are with him, will appear with him in glory. Boy, I can't, there's no words that can express how awesome that day will be. I I got nothing. Because anything I share with you will be so small in comparison to that moment when we stand and see Jesus Christ in all his glory face to face. And here's what I'm going to tell you, believer and unbeliever, on that day, if you bow the knee to Jesus and you get nothing more than your salvation, meaning everything else falls apart in this temporal world, you will stand and look at Jesus and say, it was all worth it for this moment. And when we look at it that way, Putting to death the sins we're going to talk about next week, it's worth it. Saying no to some pleasures, it's worth it. Saying no to some popularity, it's worth it. Not pursuing the prestige, it's worth it. It's all worth it in the end because we have one who's going to make it all right. John Ortberg, in his book, Faith and Doubt, put it this way. There are things in our world that will always disappoint, but Christ never does. We do not hope that circumstances will have changed when we wake up tomorrow. Rather, as Christians, we have hope in the one who is in control of those circumstances. The past is taken care of, Jesus says. The present is taken care of, and the future is taken care of. So what are we to do? As followers of Jesus Christ, can we just put that picture back up and say, well, we just got to sit back and wait for the coming of the Lord and not do anything? No, we're told we need to respond. And notice we are to respond by taking steps towards this life. How do we get there? 
Well, Christ has done all the work for us, but for us to experience it, we need to make some conscious decisions of something that we're going to do. And so there's a response that needs to take place. Notice he says in verse 1, we need to seek the things that are above. In verse 2, you are to set your mind on the things that are above, not on earthly things. When he, he says in verse 4 that, that you make Christ your life. And so how do you do that? You respond by making Jesus preeminent. How does that happen? Number one, write this down. You stop hanging around the graveyard. You stop hanging around the graveyard. Paul makes it clear that if we've been raised from our sin, from the grave, that we are no longer dead, we are alive. And Paul says that dead people live one way, live people live a different way. And as a live person, as one who's been born again in Christ, you're looking towards heaven, you're setting your minds not on the things of yourself and the things of this earth, but you're setting your mind on the things of the Lord. And Paul says you cannot no longer live the way you used to live. you got to put those things to death. And we'll talk about that next week. But what we do as, as Christians is we play this game that though we're alive in Christ, we hang around the places and, and we, we engage in the things that dead people used to engage with. Growing up, we, as kids, this might make you not think my parents were good parents, we would always sneak on a, on a Saturday night one of the zombie movies that was out. And they were usually black and white because for some reason the generation before us was really big on zombies, Okay. But the zombies of, of yesteryear were pretty grotesque figures. You know, their clothes were all ratty, and, and, and I wrote in my notes that I was supposed to act it out. I, I don't even think I can without you mocking me. So, and, and if you remember, you know, Night of the Living Dead and stuff, I mean, they just kind of walked weird, and, and uh, everything was kind of half, they were half alive, half dead. It was a grotesque thing. And so the last thing any kid ever wanted to say was, I want to be a zombie. That just looks really great. They stammered, they muttered, there's just nothing coherent going on there. But have you noticed Hollywood has shifted things? Have you noticed that zombies are the cutest guys and cutest girls out there? You know, that they got it all together. They're not stammering, they're not muttering, they're, they're the real deal, man. They look like they're enjoying life. And we have soap operas and books written about these zombies and their pursuits. Here's the problem. If you take the idea of zombie being something that can be pretty, then you lose what Paul is telling you. Paul wants this picture that you are alive and complete in Christ, and the last thing you would want to do is look like one of those crazy zombies that I remember growing up with. Just the, that's idiocy. Why in the world would I want to go from being alive and whole and in the fullness of Jesus Christ to go to that kind of life? But here's what we do. We leave church today. And when I say we, I mean me too. We leave church and we feel alive. And then like I said, we turn on the TV. We turn on the internet. We go to our phone. And we hang around the zombies. And we think, I can still look good. I can still have the life. And I can still have some fun. I don't have to treat my wife or my kids that way. I can treat them like a dead person would treat them spiritually. I can make their life brutal. I can do that and still say I've got a good relationship. I can treat my boss with such disrespect and dishonor. I don't have to live like Christ. I can live like a zombie and still clean myself up enough. Paul says if you're alive in Christ, it's going to change everything about you. And one of the things that you should see progressively changing in your life is a disdain for hanging around the graveyard. One of the things that I learned last week is one of the things you only heard last week was bringing up the dead cat. And I just want to remind you over and over again that we need to, Paul uses such, ver, uh, such visual terminology, you've got to put it to death. Kill it. Because if you don't kill it, it's going to kill you. And so some of us are playing around that graveyard right now, and we've got to stop. You've been raised with Christ. So what do we do? Notice number two, we submit to the rule of Christ in all things. He says, seek the things that are above what does that mean? Well, what's above? Notice, it's Christ who is above, 
who is seated at the right hand of God. The false teachers said that you didn't need to make Christ preeminent. You could be preeminent and Christ could be a secondary thing. I want you to know that each of us do that on an ongoing basis if we're not careful. We become God and Christ becomes some refresher, if you will, some, some uh, deodorant that we put on to make us feel a little better about ourselves. Christ is not a secondary thing. He's our all in all. He's the one what rulers and authorities bow the knee to. And so what does it mean to be always, in that phrase there, seek, is meaning keep seeking, and when you're done seeking, keep seeking some more. What are you to be seeking? The rule and reign of Christ in your life. And so every decision that you make, you funnel it through the one who is seated on his throne. So young person, you say, uh, what college should I go to? Christ, what college should I go to? What person should I marry? Am I ready for marriage? What what do I do with that? Christ, what do you say? Uh, How should I treat my family? Christ, why don't you tell me? How should I spend my money? Christ, tell me. And we go every decision, everything we do, we do so funneling it through the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ. You want to live the life that Christ wants to give you? Then you got to live it according to his terms. That's why he says in verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Every decision you make, if you want this life, has to be made with Christ's authority in mind. So notice he finally then leads us to seeking and now set your mind. That's again, it's a perpetual thing, always setting our minds on things that are above, not things that are on earth. Verse 2. Literally there, the King James Version gets it right. It literally means set your affections. Set your affections on things that are above. We need to be careful that the world doesn't define what we need and what we want. As a, as a man who works in food service, I, I was reading an article about a year ago, and it was talking about the amount of food that we eat these days. 20 years ago, we consumed half of the food that we do today. Did you know that? It's crazy. Now, I want you to know that somewhere in the, in the late 90s, our stomachs went through a metamorphosis that they expanded. We needed more food, right? No, nothing physiologically changed. But what happened was, is advertising started to tell us what we needed and wanted instead of what God has given us. And what I mean by that is at some point in in the burger war, we were content with one patty. Then it became two patties. Then someone introduced the triple cheeseburger. And then we were glad and rejoiced that we got the quattro, right? This, a couple weeks ago, Keith and I were down in Dallas and I saw a billboard uh, for a burger that has not one, two, three, or four, but five. It's the leaning tower of burger. And I'm all for a burger-induced coma, okay? But what, what says we need all that, right? The world's telling us. It's saying that you're not full until you have all of this. And, and, and we're just going to stuff you full because that's what you need. And I want you to know that if you are hungry, you'll fall for it every time. And I don't just mean from a food standpoint. The world's going to say, you're the boss, We want to give you what you need, and and we believe this is what you need, and we're going to fill you up, and we're going to keep filling you up. And that's why when you go to the convenience store, the 20-ounce cup is the smallest cup there. 20 years ago, it was the biggest, right? And now I I saw it at my local when they introduced a 72-ounce cup. Why do we need 72 ounces? We don't need it. Our stomachs say we don't need it. But what says we need it are the advertisers. And the world is advertising, not just physically. Let's move on from that. The spiritual side, this is what you need to be whole. This is what you need to be happy. This is what you need to be contented. And and what we need to understand as followers of Jesus Christ, if we're not tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, if we're not setting our affections on him, we'll fall for it every time. And so we need to understand that Jesus Christ has changed us. He's made us new. And so what do we need to do this week? We need to seek God. We need to set our minds on him, our affections on him, savoring the the right things, submitting to his rule. Stop hanging around those places and around those things that are are just going to bring you back to the tomb. To do that, Christ has got to be preeminent. 
So what things, listen, what things need to get knocked down today in your life? I want you to take some moments here as I pray to ask the question, what things are preeminent in my life right now? What things have first place? If I've been raised with Christ and he's number one, and, and therefore if he's number one, I gotta get rid of some things because next week, if we don't prepare ourselves for it, next week is gonna be ugly. Because what God is gonna say is you gotta put this stuff to death and we're gonna fight them every step of the way unless we ask the Spirit to open our hearts and eyes to who we really are. So let's pray. Father God, we come before you and I thank you for your word and I thank you for the truth uh, that's been laid before us. And I pray for all those who have said, I've been raised with Christ. Lord, I pray that they would walk in him and, and follow him and pursue him. Lord, we need your spirit to be able to do that. And so I ask for your spirit's um, empowering this week. Challenge where we've been and, and what we're doing that's not in step with who you are and what you've done for us. For the one Lord who's never trusted you as their savior, who's never um, been raised from their sin, that today they would acknowledge that they're a sinner and would acknowledge you're the savior and that you are welcoming us to a walk and a journey with him for the rest of our lives with the prospect that you'll never leave us nor forsake us, and that at a day of your own choosing, you will come back and take us to be with you forever in eternity. Lord, I know that that's a, a difficult decision. I know, Lord, that there's a lot of consequences with that decision. So I pray that if there's someone here today who's never done that, that they would not leave this place, that they would even stay and watch the baptisms that are a reminder that we were dead and, and raised into newness of life, and the example of these young people who have submitted to Christ's authority. What a picture that is, and what a reminder that as a child of God, we've been raised and are now hidden for your glory. Now, Lord, lead us from this place as, as we go about this week, and I pray that we will truly savor and set our affections on you and you alone so when the temptation comes, when the troubles come, we'll keep our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Thank you for this time, Lord, in your word. Thank you for these people and their willingness to listen. And I pray that it will impact greatly in the days to come. We love you, Jesus, and we praise you as the preeminent one. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.